This morning, I want to finish what we started last week and just give you some foundational foundational nuggets to the doctrine of sin. Now, let me, let me give you the first couple that we talked about last week just by way of review. Six things I want you to know basically about the doctrine of sin was the title of our message last week. Six things we all need to know about the doctrine of sin. Number one, we said the first thing is we've got to understand the meaning of sin. If we don't understand the basic meaning of sin, <clears throat> excuse me, then we're not going to get very far with understanding the doctrine of man. We're not going to understand the doctrine of God. We're certainly not going to understand the doctrine of salvation. If we don't understand the meaning of sin, then our understanding of what God has done on the cross, what He's done through Christ, what His eternal purpose has been, it's all going to be skewed, okay? We said in, uh, under the category of the meaning of sin that while there are numerous words in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, in the Greek and Hebrew, used to connotate this idea of sin, there are two used. One in the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew word chata, it's used 522 times. It means basically to miss the mark. There's a similar word in the Greek used in the New Testament, and it is the word hermartia, and it is used 227 times. Now, you don't have to remember that, okay? I just want you to understand that this is a big chunk of your Bible, all right? Both words, both words... Conjure a picture in our minds, or should conjure a picture of our minds, of an archer pulling back his bow and arrow, shooting an arrow, and not hitting dead center perfect bullseye, but missing the mark. That's what the, the uh, analogy of missing the mark is supposed to connotate in our minds. That we see an arrow falling short. But we said not only does it miss the mark, so that we say, you know what, we tried our best and we just didn't measure up to God's holy standard. But sin also connotates the idea that not have we positively missed the mark, but we have positively also hit a wrong mark. Okay? So we're not just falling short, we're giving it our best effort, but we are intentionally hitting the wrong mark when we miss God's perfect mark. Alright? So we talked about the meaning of sin. Next, we talked a little bit about the origin of sin. And let me remind you that in any one of these uh, areas we could write a whole book on, we're just giving you a little bit of a foundation so that you can build your doctrine of sin upon. We talked about the origin of sin because everybody wants to know. I mean, it's an it's a, it's a understandable thing to ask. Where does this thing of sin come from? I mean, why is it even here? Why isn't everything just perfect and everybody just perfect? So it's a logical question. Where did sin come from? And uh, we narrowed it down to two answers, and I'll just blow through these because we spent more time on them last week. Number one, we said that sin entered the universe through the account of the fall of Lucifer. It was the first time in all the universe, historically, that we see, biblically, the mention of sin. That the Bible says, Ezekiel uh, gives a historic account, that Satan tried to raise himself above the throne of God, and he was cast down because of his sin. All right, And so we see... Sin entered the universe for the first time in the account of Lucifer in his fall. Then we see the account of sin entering our world. All right, we go from the universe to the world. We see sin enter our world. Where at? In the garden. Genesis. It's not Satan's fault alone. Now we add man to the account. And in the world, we find that sin enters through Adam. Okay? Historical account found in Genesis, theological account we talked about found in Romans 5, verse 12, and we're going to come back to that verse in just a few minutes. We answered just a couple of questions under the origin of sin that probably nag all of us if we're thinking people. Number one, we talked about the question, did God create sin? 
I mean, we've got to ask, right? Is sin God's fault, in essence? Did he do it? Was it part of his original design? And, of course, the answer we said was no. I gave you a passage of Scripture from James that says, Let no man say, when he is tempted, that he is tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no man to evil or to sin. Instead, the responsibility, James says, is placed fully upon each man. Listen to this verse in the book of James. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by, here's the key, his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. You see the growth pattern here? Desire grows, sin grows, the book of James says, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Death. So, uh, Millard Erickson, a famous uh, theologian, he's put it this way, that we all have inherently and by our created nature desires, basic desires. Desires, he says, to enjoy things, obtain things, and even do things. But when we allow those natural desires to be corrupted, to not line up with the standards that God has set, well, then those desires give birth to sin. Book of James, okay? Listen to what Erickson said. There are proper ways to satisfy each of these desires, and there are also divinely imposed limits. Failure to accept these as they have been constituted by God, and therefore to submit to the divine control is sin. In such cases, the desires are not seen in the context of their divine origin and as a means to an end of pleasing God, but as an end in themselves. Augustine put it this way, Sin comes when we take a perfectly natural natural desire or longing or ambition and try desperately to fulfill it without God. Not only is it sin, it is a perverse distortion of the image of the Creator in us. All these good things... And all our security are rightly found only and completely in Him. A.W. Tozer, one of Preston's favorites, he said it this way, Everything in the universe is good to the degree that it conforms to the nature of God and evil as it fails to do so. So, did God create sin? No. It's born out of our own desires and the lack, uh, the ability and the lack of control upon those desires. All right? Let me jump ahead here. The second question we asked last week under the origin of sin, not only did God create sin, and we said the answer to that is no, but then we might ask, did God allow the possibility for sin? And certainly the answer is yes. If we hold that we serve a sovereign God, a God that is in total control, a God that is never surprised, okay? A God that is never shocked by the actions of Satan or by the actions of us. If we hold to a divinely sovereign God in total and absolute control, and we do, then we must admit and we must confess that God knew that sin was going to be part of life on earth. Evidence of this is the fact that Scripture says that from eternity past, there was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Now follow me here. If God had an eternal plan from eternity past, For Christ to die on the cross for our sins, it follows then that he knew sin would be a part, and he therefore allowed sin to be a part. Now, we don't have time to jump into it, but the reason for that is, very uh, short 
answer here is that God needs the black keys of life to accentuate the white keys of life. Anybody play piano? I'm not a musician, but here's what I know about the piano. That if you play just the white keys, you're going to get okay music. But if you can mix together the white keys and the black keys, you're going to get a totally different sound, okay? When you put it in the, in, the, in the scope of God, God needs both the black and the white keys. He needs both good and evil to display to humanity who he is in his entirety. All right? More on that later. So that's what we talked about in regards to the origin of, uh, origin of sin. We talked about the meaning of sin, the origin of sin, and then we started last week saying that we've got to understand the difference between the state of sin and the act of sin. The state of sin and the act of sin. We could list for you, we could give you a long list from Scripture of individual sins. And there are those individual acts of sin. But there's something biblically that we have to understand if we're going to understand the doctrine of sin that is more than just an individual act of sin. It is a state of sin. It is a disposition within us towards sin. I compared it last week to the difference between a symptom of an illness and the virus that causes the illness. A symptom is just that presenting thing that says, I'm sick. I have a fever. My arm hurts. My leg hurts. I've got a headache. Those are just symptoms. What's the root cause? What is the virus? And that's what we're talking about here. We all understand and we all seem to know that there are sins that we all get involved in, perhaps. Uh, I lie, cheat, and steal on occasion. But we also have to understand biblically that there is this thing called sin. Romans 5, verse 12. Look at this. I want to show you something here. In Romans 5, 12. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some uh, near your seat there on the floor. Feel free to grab those. Romans 5, verse 12. This is uh, a token verse on not only the origin of sin, but it tells us a whole lot about the doctrine of sin jam-packed into one verse. Romans 5.12 says this, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now there's a lot there. We're going to unpack it as we go through the next points. But here's what I want to give you in regards to the difference between the virus and the symptom. The difference between the state of sin and the acts of sin. In this verse, you don't see it in your English translation, but if you were to know the Greek of this verse, the verse would read like this. Therefore, just as through one man, not sin, but the sin, proper. There's a definite article in the Greek in front of sin throughout the verse. So the Apostle Paul is not talking here about these individual acts of sin. He's talking about this thing, this virus, this infection that is infected and spread to all men through one man. But don't miss the fact. He says it is the sin. Now, your individual sins pass down. But he says that what we have gotten from Adam, what happened at the fall was that the sin, the state of sin, the disposition, the bent towards sin, the virus itself was passed on. Now more on that in a minute, more on Romans 5 in just a minute. Listen to what one biblical scholar said, a guy named Wayne Barber. He's an expert in this field. He said, So it was not a particular sin or an individual sin, 
but the inherent propensity to sin that entered the human realm so that men became sinners by nature. You ever, you ever think about that, that we call people sinners? Why do we call people sinners? Well, right off the top of our head, we, we, we think we call people sinners because they sin. But there's something deeper here that we have to understand in the history of man that comes in the fall, that we are sinners because of the state, the virus that is sin that has been passed from Adam down the line straight into us as if it were in our DNA. Okay? Um, let me jump on here. A little bit short on time. Let me, let me just tell you this. Why, why is it important, you might ask, to differentiate between this state of sin and the individual acts of sin? Let me give you a prime example. Last week I was, uh, I was out in the community and um, I got to share my faith with this, with this guy, um, actually in the engineering field. And uh, I, gave him the whole, I gave him the bad news, I gave him the good news, I talked to him about his sin, etc. And he was basically indifferent. And here's what he did. He said, you know, I know I have sin. I know I have individual points of sin in my life. I know I'm not perfect. And I thought, well, that's, that's good. That's something. But what he didn't understand was that he had this bent towards sin. He didn't understand that he was infected with sin. Here's why. It's because I said to him, I said, you know, what is, what is the answer for you? And he said, well, I guess that I'm just hoping that God looks at my life and sees all the good more than the bad. See sees the good deeds more than the bad deeds. Doesn't see all my sins, individual acts, but he just sees deep down that I'm a good person. Now, do you see what's missing there? The doctrine of the thing of sin. Can I tell you that 99% of the lost world, uh, they might agree with you, unless they are just totally arrogant person, they're going to agree with you that they have individual points of sin. Where the issue comes in is when you start to nail them on the fact that they are a sinner by nature, that they are inherently infected, that they have this thing that has been passed down to them. But they would say, no, no, I'm inherently good. And if I just cleaned up these individual acts, then maybe God will approve. And so you see, even in evangelism, it helps us to understand clarity here between the state of sin and the acts of sin so that we could speak to the root problem. We not just address the symptom, but we can address the virus itself that is killing a lost world. Amen? All right. Um, Spurgeon said this, A person does not become a sinner by committing sins, but rather commits sins because he is by nature a sinner. A person does not become a liar when he tells a lie. He tells a lie because his heart is already deceitful. For as Jesus clearly declared, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanderers. We're not sinners because of our sins. We sin because we are sinners. And that's a big deal, guys. That's a big deal. Do you know how a worm gets into an apple? You ever thought about that? You ever thought about that? For a long time, we thought that worms burrowed their way into the apple. Until we we started seeing uh, worms popping out of the apple with no hole going in. You know what they figured out? That insects were laying eggs in the seed pods of the apple before it ever became 
a full-grown apple. And so that worm was birthed in the core. And as the apple grew, the worm grew, and now the worm pops its head out. Listen, folks, we are inherently, inherently sinful, by the Bible says. It shows its ugly head in the individual acts of our life. When we lie, cheat, steal, dishonor our parents, lust, all those things. That makes sense. All right, let's go on here. Um, number four, we've talked about the meaning, the origin, the difference between the state and the act of sin. Let me give you what the world says are alternatives to the doctrine of sin. And uh, you'll face these if you ever share your faith and if you ever try and convince someone that they are uh, sinners by evidence of their sins. They are by nature sinners that has been passed on from Adam. They're going to give you all kinds of reasons why they are not sinful inherently, but why they are good. And it gets explained away in our world. I mean, sin every day just gets explained away, this thing of sin. Some people say that sin is just an illusion. That it's, it's not really sin. I mean, it's not really there. And here's what they say. That uh, we have this lack of information or this lack of knowledge. And this lack of information or knowledge is the reason for the illusion of sin. So that if somehow we might evolve ourselves or educate ourselves or raise our uh, social level up high enough, we might love each other enough, etc. If we might do enough, understand enough, gain enough knowledge that we can eliminate the ignorance and therefore eliminate sin. And so sin is just this illusion, this thing that we can overcome. Some will say that sin is just, in our world, selfishness. Uh, and while it is, while sin is selfishness, it is not just that. Biblically, to say that sin is just selfishness would be an inadequate definition. It's as if, uh, it's as if, uh, it's as if we would say that um, we could stop being selfish and then rid ourselves of sin. That if we could get rid of all of our selfish inclinations, then the world would just be a better place and sin would go away. But we all know that sin is more than just selfishness, right? We can't overcome it by coming, becoming less selfish. Others would say... Uh, and this is the popular theology of uh, what we call liberation theology or social gospel sex. Others would say that sin is just an economic and social struggle. That if we could level the playing field in our world, that if we could level the playing field socially, between races, economically, between wallets, if we could put everybody on the same level, then there wouldn't be this struggle socially between us and sin would just go away. So that if we could just liberate ourselves and we could, uh, we could have this utopia on earth, which, by the way, biblically doesn't happen, that if we could just achieve this utopia on earth, then we could eliminate sin. That's the goal. It's kind of like praying for world peace and expecting it to come, right? I mean, we all pray for peace in our world, right? But biblically, we know that the end isn't a happy ending when it comes to our world. Things aren't getting better biblically in our world. They're getting worse. And so to believe that we can improve things to such a degree that we can eliminate all the things that raise me up above you and raise you up above me and we can just put everybody on the same level playing field, then none of us would sin anymore. 
Well, that is the Loch Ness Monster. That's the abominable snowman when it comes to Scripture. Okay? Incidentally, do you notice the commonality between all uh, of those three alternatives to sin that I gave you? They all assume something. They all assume that man is, once again, inherently good. And that if we just overcome the hurdles, we can eliminate sin on our own. Now, is that uh, antagonistic to Scripture? You better believe it. We cannot, we could not, we cannot, we will never be able to overcome this thing of sin all on our own. It's the reason Christ had to come. All right? Well, number five talked about the meaning, the origin, difference between the state and the act. We talked about some of the alternatives. Let me talk to you briefly about this transmission of sin from one human to another. And I want you to go back to Romans 5, verse 12, because once again, this is our token verse on the doctrine of sin. Two words that I want to point out to you here, although we could focus on many. Two words I want to point out to you here in this verse. I've already showed you that when he mentions sin, there is a definite article there that it infers that it is the sin, this, this inherent bent towards sin that is passed on. It is the virus of sin. It is the sin, not the individual acts of sin. But the scripture says that therefore, just as through one man, the sin, the sin nature, if you will, entered into the world. Now stop on that word entered. In the Greek, that word literally means to come into or to enter into. A couple things here, and uh, I hate to dump the Greek on you here, but it's important, so just hang with me, all right? In the Greek, in the Greek grammar, there is what we call the aorist tense and what we call the indicative mood. And here's what that means. That when Paul says entered, the tense of his grammar, the mood of of his grammar says that it just didn't enter. But here's what the Greek word says. It entered completely into who? Who does it say? The world. That would be all of us. Okay? But not just did it enter into all of us, but it entered into all of us. Aorist tense means at one point in time. When Adam sinned, that virus entered at one point in time, aorist tense, into who? All of us. Now that's a big deal. That immediately when he did that, immediately when he did that, we were all doomed to inherit the virus. It entered all of us. Aorist tense, at a certain time. Not only does it mean at a certain time, um, well let me go on here. Instead of, um, instead of to all men, one theologian points out that he says it is into all men. The little word in the Greek that means into, he says it is a grand picture. When Adam sinned, out of his body was passed the seed of sin to all mankind. Into all mankind. The death, the sin, every man, born of man and woman on this earth is born into The sin, that virus. The sin is born into Adam, is born into the death. Without ever having done anything, it happens. Did you catch that? Without us ever having done anything, it happens. Why is that important? Because people would have us believe that their lives are pretty much perfect. 
Paul tells us, without us ever having to do anything, we inherit this sin virus. It has entered into us automatically when Adam sinned. And no matter whether we sin individually or not, we've got that virus. But we know that our life evidences that virus because we continue to sin. Amen? Well, the other word I want you to see here in this verse, keep going. Therefore, just as one man, just as through one man, the sin entered into the world at one particular time, and death through sin, and so the death, here's the other word, spread to all men because all sinned. Literally, that word spread, it means to go throughout. And if you picture a virus being injected into a human being, that virus doesn't just stay in one place. The blood carries it throughout. So how extensive is this sin passed on? How extensive is this transmission? We all get it. None of us have to do anything to get it. It happened back when Adam fell. And how far does it go? That word spread means that it totally infects us, that there is nothing good left. It spreads throughout. It transverses us. It speaks of complete movement in a particular direction. Vance Havner said, Adam ate. Adam ate us out of house and home when he ate the apple. And that's the inference of this text, that through one man, Adam, the sin entered at a specific point in time and passed through or went throughout the entire world. It entered. It spread. We didn't have to do a thing, folks. Do you understand how big this thing of sin is now? All right, I'm going to wrap up. I'm going to give you the last point here in these six things we need to understand about sin. Let me just give you a few observations. Number one, sin is not eternal. We need to understand that. Sin is not eternal. There is not this cosmic ping-pong match between God and Satan, between good and evil going on that we hope good wins out, that we hope that God wins over his adversary, his equal adversary. That's not biblically correct. Remember we pointed out last week that Satan, Lucifer in his fall, he is a created being. Okay? It is below God. He is not an equal to God. And so there is not this cosmic tennis match between God hitting a shot, hoping that it gets by Satan, Satan hitting it back, and we got this ping pong match, and we're waiting to see who wins. Alright? There is not this dualism factor. Sin is not eternal. Sin is not eternal. And it will be dealt with. Number two, sin is not just an absence of good. It is more than that. And I'll unpack that more in coming weeks. Number three, sin is not just the weakness of human flesh. That we might believe that somehow if we can uh, more, be more disciplined, somehow we can uh, become more educated, somehow we become more socially aware that we can get rid of this thing of sin, that we can overcome it. That it is just our human weakness that we must overcome and then we can overcome sin. It's more than that, okay? It is a virus that must be dealt with or it will cause death. Number four, sin has no standard of its own. Now follow this. It must derive its measure from that which is positive and good. We only understand evil. We only understand sin as it is falling short of that which is good. So it has no standard even itself. It depends on good. And that's just an interesting thought. 
Number five, sin rarely displays itself as sin. It disguises itself as good. You ever thought about that? That no one who sins, you know, when Hitler uh, massacred hundreds, thousands of Jews, he had a reason. He had a rationalization. He said he, he was doing it for an ultimate good. And so you see, even evil disguises itself as good. It would dare not show its face as absolute evil. It can't do that. Number six, sin hates itself. Sin hates itself. Good has friends. Now follow me here. Love, joy, peace, patience are all friends of good, of righteousness. They all fit. They all get along. Sin Sin has nothing but adversaries. Not only is good its adversary, but all other sin is its adversary. You see, evil competes against itself even. Whereas good can get along with itself. Sin just rubs and bangs its head, not only against good, but against all the other evil out there. That it would one-up. That it would be more evil. That it would be the better evil. Alright, let me stop there. And... um, We're going to jump back in this next week. Let me tell you what's coming as we spend a few more weeks in the doctrine of sin. This has been, I told you, the most academic of our lessons on sin. They're going to become more applicative. That means they're going to become more relevant to your everyday life. But we have to have this foundation. We have to understand some of these basic things on the doctrine of sin. So that now when we begin to talk about how do we as lost people deal with this infection of sin? How do we as believers deal with this thing of sin. Is sin still present in us now that we're saved? If so, how do we deal with it? Can we overcome it? Are we able to overcome it? How do we deal with it? How do we suppress it? Can we get rid of it completely? Or is it even a part of the believer's life? We're going to answer those questions. We're going to talk about if it is there, how do we deal with it? How do we control the sins that are in our life as believers? How do we overcome? We're going to talk about steps on how we win the battle. We're also going to talk about how we deal with sin in the lives of other believers. That when my brother falls into sin, what is my responsibility? How do I help him without hurting him? We're going to talk about how to deal with sin in the church. How does the church corporately deal with sin? All right? So you guys stick around. We're going to dig into this a little deeper. Let's pray.